Welcome to Authors of the Pacific Northwest, where we connect authors with new listeners and provide advice to aspiring authors on the business of writing. I'm your host, Vicki J. Carter. So hi there, podcast listeners. Thank you so much for coming back to another week of the Authors of the Pacific Northwest. And this week, I have the pleasure of introducing you to John Dodge. So John, would you like to say hello to the listeners? Hello, listeners. Well, we are so happy to have you on the show. We have a lot to talk about. Um, So let's start out with a little bit about you, John. What state in the Pacific Northwest do you reside in? I'm in Washington State in the near the state capital of Olympia. Ah, everybody that listens to podcast knows that Olympia is my favorite city. <laughs> the little <laughs> hidden gym I feel like in Washington, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm south of you right now, um, but I did yeah. live in Olympia for a while, so I love Olympia. Um, so, John, you have a, an amazing um, background story about what you did um, prior to me meeting you. So share with us a little bit about what you did um, that you retired from, because I think it's very interesting. You bet. Well, I had a 40-year career in print journalism, including a time when newspapers were uh, popular and people bought them and read them. <laughs> and there was no internet and there was uh, a pretty captive pretty much captive audience. So anyway, from uh, 1976 to 2015, I worked in uh, the world of newspapers. Uh, Most of my career, I was either an environmental natural resource reporter or a columnist and editorial page writer. Mm -hmm. And 35 of those years were with the Olympian, the paper here in Olympia, Washington, which is owned by McClatchy, it, which has the Tacoma paper as well. Mm-hmm. So the News Tribune and the Olympian were where most of my work uh, appeared. Well, I think it's honestly a newspaper writing is one of the, for me, one of the most fascinating. Um, when I was younger in high school, in my high school, I was, I was the editor of our school newspaper and I got the bug from that. Uh-huh. And really developed as a writer, but I thought that I was going to go into news um, reporting and do writing that way and then kind of sidetracked. But I was transitioning. That was about the time when, like you said, things were starting to really hop with um, the changes for newspapers. Because like you said, I remember the day when everybody had a newspaper delivered to their door every month every morning and you would see people reading their newspaper every single morning <laughs> so yeah these days well <laughs> but yeah there's been a lot of contraction and reduction and I, I think currently there's over 1300 communities in our country that are not served by a Mm-hmm. daily daily or weekly newspaper so. yeah and now you see people on their phones getting their news from their phone yeah you know yeah. So, so yeah well I I commend you for all the years of writing I think that's wonderful and and I'm sure it makes your you know writing now you're probably a much better writer because you were a newspaper reporter <laughs> you know you have to be very concise when you're writing for the newspaper well that's there's a that's a pro, plus and a minus there is a tendency to be very lean and to the point and concise mm-hmm. in, uh-huh. in reporting and journalism. And now um, as I embark on a um, expanded writing career, both fiction and nonfiction, I have to kind of uh, allow myself to go a little deeper, more, more descriptive, more reflective. It, it's, a, it's an interesting change of pace. No, I bet it is. And see, all of us, I mean, that don't have the background of newspaper writing, we're told to make it more concise, you know, (laughs) so much description in there, you know, so I think that's very fascinating to hear on the other side of it. (laughs) Well, I guess I'm trying, I guess I'm trying to meet you in the middle. Yes. Yes, and I think readers would appreciate us all if we wrote in the middle, right? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah, too, you don't want too much digression, but it can be a useful tool. It, it definitely can. It can. Yeah. Well, I'm going to ask you a stumper question that I didn't, I didn't send to you. So, so the question is, um, 
What is one thing you would like readers to know about you up front? And it doesn't have to do with writing. It can be random or it can be something about your writing journey or just one little thing that if you have a listener that's listening and they don't know you yet, what's one thing you'd like them to remember about you? Well, I I guess one thing I would say is that reporters are often, uh, people have this perception that people that they're being told what to write and how to write it by some invisible force, be it a publisher or a major advertiser in their community or something. And I think I can safely say that I, everything I've written, I've chose to write myself. And every time I make a mis- if I make a mistake, it's my mistake. It's, it's uh, I, I consider myself kind of an independent contractor and, I've maintained a pretty darn good reputation over the years. People find my work to be credible and trustworthy, and I take pride in that. Oh, that is a wonderful thing to share with us. And also to um, have that integrity in your news writing, you know, in your past that you, you've really taken ownership. I think that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. So thank you for sharing that, especially in our time right now. We need to know that there are individuals out there that are taking ownership of what they say in print. (laughs) Absolutely. And uh, as an aside, I I know that I had never heard of the phrase fake news Mm -hmm. much, if not all of my career. Exactly. that's That's the new one. It is the new word, right, of, about it. And it's something that I find incredibly comical coming from a little teeny bit of being trained in journalism. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, wow, this is an interesting twist we have in history right now. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. So let's, I ask oh, one more question I like to ask um, that is going to, might throw you off a little bit. So as writers and probably you, as a um, news reporter from your past, we were told often, you know, to be a good writer, you need to be reading uh, a lot. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a great tip. So I like to ask, occasionally I remember to ask the authors that come on, what are you currently reading? Because I think listeners love to Well, I'm, I'm currently, I'm, I'm looking at what's on my uh, book stand right now. And I have Salvaged the Bones by Jesmyn Ward. Mm-hmm. I tend to go back and forth between fiction and nonfiction. I'm also next on in line is Jennifer Egan's Manhattan Beach. Um, I'm about halfway through Go Tell It on the Mountain by James Baldwin. And I just finished uh, Overstory by Richard Powers. Nice. So Nice so selection. There's a, there's a few books that I've, I've been uh, attracted to. So, John, do you read more than one book at a time, or do you read one book and then finish and go to the next? Mostly the latter. I yeah. have a hard time juggling books, but but the bald go tell it on the mountain. I've, it's taking me a little longer. I've taken a few uh, respites from it. I don't know why, but uh, anyway, yeah. so generally I'll, I'll read one book at a time. Yeah, I'm a one book reader too. I, I can't stay focused. I have in the past, you know, in college, you have to read tons of books, sure. all, you know, and that, that was a little too um, crazy for me. So I enjoy reading one book at a time, but I tend to be a slow reader um, because I'm really focused in on the book and in my ba- my busy day, you know, I I, mm-hmm. life, I get very small snippets of time to read, just like I get very small snippet times to write. So, <laughs> right. I, I, well, well, I think that there's just no doubt about it that the two things you have to do if you want to be a uh, published author is you have to read every day and you have to write every day. Mm-hmm. I mean, they yeah. go hand in hand and. Yep. And it's just a matter of finding the right balance. But yep, so uh, true. The, yeah, I, I totally subscribe to that. Hmm. Well, I just finished. I, I never talk about what I'm reading, but I just because I do read a lot of the author's books before they come on the podcast. So that takes mm-hmm. a little bit of my reading time. But I snuck in Michelle Obama's book um, and, ah. got, and got through that, which I thoroughly enjoyed. I thought it was a wonderfully done. Um, and it was wonderful because we never really got to see a lot of her voice. And hearing yeah. her reading her voice was really 
um, impactful. I enjoyed it. Passing that along to my daughters because they're both wanting to read it too. So that was a good one. And now I'm currently reading an author that I'll be bringing on the podcast. So now I'm back into fiction reading. <laughs> so it's, it's interesting. You mentioned becoming, um, I haven't read it yet, but on Amazon, when you look up my book, they, they have a little thing. They say, what, uh, what other books readers that are interested in your book are reading? And for some reason they have educated and becoming listed. Uh-huh. And I go, oh, that, that's pretty good company. That is great company, if you ask me. <laughs> that's wonderful. Well, we'll get, <laughs> we'll get to your book here in just a minute. But we kind of sure. segued a little bit about the writing process. You mentioned it. Yeah. You know, as far as an author, you know, we need to be reading and we also need to be writing. So, um, and that was one thing that you mentioned, you know, when I asked for you to be on the podcast, it's something you like to talk about. So let's get on that subject. Um, tell us a little bit about your writing process, because I'm curious if your writing process is similar to other authors that mm-hmm. I've heard, or if you have a special technique because of your news writing background. <laughs> well, I don't think I have a, any, I think I'm pretty well organized. I think I have the ability to kind of outline and see how a story is going to, and this is in the case of the book we're about to discuss about the Columbus Day Storm. But for a nonfiction book, I, I'm a true believer in in a lot of research, a lot of organizing uh, of how you want to lay out the story. I tend, this book is pretty much a chronological uh, sequence of mm-hmm. events mm-hmm. Uh, over a 24-hour period, mm-hmm. uh, covering, covering a span of over 1,100 miles, uh, which is the path of the storm. But anyway, so I tend to be heavy on research. Uh, I love storytelling, so I'm always looking for people that have good stories to tell, in this case, what they experienced during the storm. Uh, I like to mix in a little historical scene setting, mm-hmm. things that, along the path of the storm, different places that we visit, what they're like, what's the history of the town, whether it's Newport or Longview or uh, Coos Bay. And I also tend to do most of my writing in the morning. Mm-hmm. I do my, and, I, and I do my writing on a, on a computer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't write longhand I'll take I do keep a notebook with me at all times mm-hmm. and, uh, either around you know when I'm out and about if I see or hear some dialogue I like I'll write it down or, or see some something in someone's physical appearance that I want to use later I'll write it down so anyway I'm I'm always I think as a journalist you're always shaping your story after maybe even before you write it because you've done the interview, maybe you're driving back to the office to, to put the, put the story to words. And you, I write in my head a lot. Mm-hmm. What I guess, I guess mm-hmm. I'm saying mm-hmm. I do that in the shower. I write, mm-hmm. I'm thinking in the, sh- I can't get it. I can't turn it off. It's, mm-hmm. it's always there. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that's something I talk. I mean, I think that if my listeners have listened to all my podcasts, which I doubt anybody's listened to all of them, but it's a common theme that we talk about as writers is that we almost can never shut it off, especially when we're in the creative process. It just, you, it comes and you yeah. got to hide it while it's there because yeah. you don't want that to be quiet. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> right, so, right. So with your experience um, and in, in the, news writing, you have a lot of experience of receiving feedback from your editor and from contributors. Um, mm-hmm. So how does that work with your own personal writing now as you after you worked on this particular book? Did you employ an editor? Did you have an editor? Um, how did you go about getting some feedback to, mm-hmm. to produce the work? Okay. Well, there, it, it was, a, you mentioned, you know, what's the earlier in your email, you talked about the journey mm-hmm. that led to publication of the mm-hmm. book. And the, mm-hmm. the journey in this case uh, was a long one. It was a five-year journey. Uh, and I decided to, when, once I chose the topic, I, I did a lot of research to make sure it, the story had not been told completely mm-hmm. or, or well, well told. I wanted to be the first. Mm-hmm. So, but anyway, um, the... The, one of the funny things was that early on, before I even had a 
full manuscript, I, I managed to secure a New York agent, a oh. agent, an agent at a very high powered uh, firm. And mm. it was a matter of connections and, and kind of luck. But anyway, he, he thought the book had potential. So he took me on, I signed the contract. So, well, I've got a New York agent. I'm on my way. <laughs> well, um, when I finished the first draft of the manuscript and he was shopping it around, he didn't, he didn't have much luck in New York. It just, mm. it's a, you know, it's a Pacific, we haven't really talked about what the book is about. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you can, you're welcome to introduce it now. So the listeners will understand okay. why it didn't hit New York. Yeah. Well. <laughs> yeah. well, the book is called the Colum- a deadly Wind, the 1962 Columbus state storm. So this is a book set in the Pacific Northwest it, mm-hmm. from Northern California to Southern British Columbia. And it's the mightiest windstorm on record uh, in recorded history for the West coast. So it's a severe weather yarn story. It's nonfiction. Uh, the, the storm in essence becomes the protagonist. It's moving at 40 to 50 miles an hour up the coast. There's not any way to find a into one individual to, to keep the narrative alive through, through their voice. And that was a, that was a bit of a a down kind of a downside to the project. It Mm -hmm. didn't have a protagonist. So Mm -hmm. I heard, heard a lot of that as a critique or complaint. Then the other thing I heard from the New York publishers was that it's too much of a regional story. Hmm. And, and so I, he tried hard and, and, but he didn't find a home for it. So I, I turned my attention to uh, academic presses in the Northwest. Mm-hmm. And my first choice was Oregon State University Press because about the Willamette Valley in Oregon was ground zero for the storm. That's mm-hmm. where most of the death and destruction was. So it's a good fit for them. Uh, 10 to 12 of the chapters occur within 50 miles of Corvallis, 50 to 75 miles. So anyway, it turned that was pretty easy to get their interest, but to get published by an academic press, you need to be your manuscript must be read by uh, two uh, autonomous authors, hmm. people that have been published uh, in your area of expertise or in the field mm-hmm. in which you're writing, mm-hmm. and they they tear your manuscript apart from cover to cover and Mm -hmm. critique it, make suggestions. And then ultimately they're, they're asked, do you recommend that OSU press publish this book? Yes or no. And Mm -hmm. what, what changes need to be made if for you, for your answer to be yes. Well, so I went through that process. One of the reviewers, and I don't know who they are to this day, who they were. One of the reviewers was quite, complimentary and recommended uh, without much qualms publication. The other one had quite a few um, kind of snarky things to say. (laughs) Kill your darlings. You've got too many darlings and uh, that kind of stuff. Anyway, he said he he needs a, a vicious editor that takes no prisoners or, you know, that kind of language. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, and so he said, you have to do this, this, and this. And then I'm allowed a rebuttal where I can critique their critiques. And say, mm-hmm. And so I, I told them, I'm willing to do these things because they obviously make the book better, the manuscript mm-hmm. better. I'm willing to do these other things if it helps the book to get published. Mm-hmm. And then the third thing is I'm, I refuse to do this because I think it <laughs> takes away from my voice and my, my project and what I'm trying to accomplish. A good case in point, I have a chapter in there where I can show that the Oregon wine industry, a, a multi-billion dollar industry today, mm-hmm. was, was given birth by the storm. The storm helped the industry to get its footing because it opened up all these uh, all this acreage that had been uh, fruit and nut orchards that was decimated by the winds and they laid fallow for years. And then the wine pioneers came along and bought the land for pennies on the dollar and started growing grapes. 
Yay, well, thanks for the wine industry. <laughs> so I, you know, to, I'd never heard that story before and I uh-uh. researched it and felt comfortable with it. And this guy, the one guy said, well, that, that wind and wine is, is not, is a non-story. You sh- that doesn't belong in a book and put it in the back as a footnote. Well, hmm. I, I disagreed. And uh-huh. so did, luckily that my publisher did too, disagreed. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And as it turns out, when I go on book talks, book tours, most people mention that as their favorite chapter. So, well, thank goodness you stuck to your guns on that. <laughs> yeah, 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 but it's, yeah. it kind of points out to the, you know, the random randomness of uh, critiques. Mm-hmm. It does, and I find it incredibly fascinating. I'm really glad you went into detail what it's like to be published from an academic press because I'm curious. I yeah, work for, it is different. It is very different, and it's. Not, I don't have a lot of published authors that have come on that have gone through that process. Um, I work for an academic university. We don't publish, though, um, but I have published as uh, peer review articles in the past. So I know mm-hmm. it's very, very different. Um, yeah. <laughs> and you also have to uh, pass a vote of a faculty mm-hmm. council that's made up of people from multiple disciplines from the, that university and U of Oregon and Portland State and Willamette. Anyway, they come together, a group of, uh, maybe maybe it's more like 11, a group that basically goes thumbs up or thumbs down on whether the university is going to spend money to print this book. And, and, and do they re, do you, do you know if they've done any review of the book or is it just yeah, by title? You yeah, know? yeah. No, they, most of them had read the book. I could tell by, I received a transcript of their meeting and oh, they okay. had to say, and one of many of them had read it. Many of them had some good suggestions one of them started his comment by saying, uh, while I haven't read the book, mm. I feel it needs this, this, and this. Well, he doesn't even know, he or she doesn't know if it's there or not already. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. exactly. That's not a good way to start an interview or exactly. a comment on a book. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, I would agree. Well, that is fascinating. And so then after, so you obviously were selected, which is a wonderful, I mean, going through that process, you must have felt very good that you're, you're selected to have it published. What kind of support as far as do, does the academic, did this particular academic press, did they just print yeah. it and did they put it out in a promotion or yeah. where, where do you go from there? OSU press is very author friendly. They do a lot of marketing for you. Mm-hmm. They, you fill out a marketing questionnaire to help them guide their efforts where they're going to try to draw attention to your book. Um, and I've been quite pleased. They've, they've landed me in some pretty nice gigs. You know, they got me into Powell city of books and mm. third place books in Seattle and some nice, nice venues, mm-hmm. historical societies, museums, but it's a partnership. The yes. author has to be an active participant. Yes. And you can you can be as busy or as lazy as you want. It it's really up to you. Um, I'm coming up on ten months since publication, and I've probably done thirty five to forty book events. Mm-hmm. And you were in Arizona just recently. Well, earlier in the year, and I missed it. <laughs> You're in the the Kelso Historicals. Yeah, yeah. And that was a very, that was a good night. We had Mm -hmm. 50, 60 people there and they were all very engaged. It was a Mm -hmm. fun night. That's a nice uh, nice amenity to have in your community. Yeah, so we're very blessed. And when they do a book, um, a historical book, um, signing like that, they typically get a lot of really wonderful people at those events. So it's it's a really good one. Yeah, so. So yeah, it's it's not the, the, the other good thing about an academic press, they, they work with you all, you know, for a full year from publication at, at least before it starts to taper off. Some of the big houses, um, it's kind of a, what have you done for me lately? And if the book starts slow or doesn't get off to, you know, doesn't get off to a good start in the market, they may move on to one of their other, they have more book, books that they're promoting. You know, the mm-hmm. OSU press only 
does 15, 20 books a year. A so. year, yeah. And so then after that, is there an opportunity for reprinting if you wanted to reprint with them? Do they give you that option or would you have to take this somewhere else? So after the end of this year, would you have to find another avenue if you wanted to print it again and put it out? Oh, no. Oh, no. They We're already on our third printing. Oh, okay. They, they will continue continue to reprint it based on demand. If, gotcha. if they start to run low on books, they'll do another run. Well, that's so, good news. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'll be that. This book will be with OSU press, you know, in perpetuity. Mm-hmm. So it'll be in their catalog for. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's a really good plus too, because researchers will go typically, I know this because I'm a librarian and I, my, I'm working on historical fiction. So I, mm-hmm. when I'm doing research on a particular area or topic, I'm going to go to a university library and look through their catalog of mm-hmm. public, that they've actually published. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm going to use that way faster than I'm going to use something else. It's just generally random that I find, you know, so, so that right. means that your book could be added into somebody's research for future, you know, so well, that's wonderful. Absolutely. I mean, I, I took great pains in in doing a comprehensive set of source notes. Mm-hmm. Um, the source notes are are somewhat exhaustive, and the index is what the um, is that the right word? Yeah, the index mm-hmm. is quite detailed. Um, and so I I thought that was important for historical context for mm-hmm. the future for people, you know, that are researching crazy windstorms in the Northwest. They yes. can find this book and, and see where I got my information. And, and anybody that does research knows that those index and those, that list that an author puts in there is your gold mine. You know, it's like, yeah. um, I, I teach researching to authors and because mm-hmm. there's a lot of authors don't know how to, you know, maximize their time in researching and so I'll do you know visits with people and then I I did put together an online course and and one of the big things that I do teach people as authors is that to go and look at the index go and look at um, the resources the author has put in their work because you're that's that's your gold mine you don't have to go back and look for anything it's there and and so um something that's a great tip. So I did have a question though. Did you get mm-hmm. input on the cover design? You know, how did that work with, with the, product? yeah, well, we wanted a dramatic photo that reflected something to do with the wind, the storm. And the one thing that's hard to find is a picture that reflects action that something's in the is happening rather than after the fact. Uh-huh. And if you've looked, if you've looked at the cover, you see this tower collapsing at uh, Western Oregon University, and it's in, it's about to tumble and hit the ground. Uh-huh. The photographer, right place, right time, caught this image as the action was unfolding, and it was hands down the iconic picture at the time. It went all over the world, uh-huh. AP, and it's held up to the, you know, it's, it's held up to the test of time. It's still the, to me, the most dramatic, well, there's some other dramatic photos, don't get me wrong, but mm-hmm. it's the only really real time image that, that I have. And it is very dramatic. So my listeners know that I'm going to put your website on the show notes so that they can jump on, and, you know, when they're not driving mm-hmm. on I-5 listening, they can go home and <laughs> check show notes and get to your website. Because I do, yeah. I love old photographs and that your photograph on the cover was definitely draws you into wanting to know the story and wanting to know what this book is about. So have you, is the um, photographer still around? Yeah, have, yeah. Wes Lacau. He lives mm-hmm. down near Salem, mm-hmm. still in contact. Oh, good. He, good. he, he, uh, oh, he's got to be in his early to mid eighties now. He was an older student in 1962, co- oldest college student in his mid twenties. So yeah, if you do the math, he's getting mm-hmm. up there, but, mm-hmm. but, uh, he was gracious. He donated the photo. I don't think he was even compensated. Oh. Yeah. Um, but, um, his story is told in the book, how mm-hmm. he got the photo. That's lovely. Well, he's, he's forever immortalized in your book now. <laughs> how he got yeah. that photo. So that's, well, that's yeah, yeah. His, his photo it will, 
you know, he, he, he's got that, you know, 10 seconds of fame for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, let's jump on to another subject, John. Mm-hmm. And while we were while you were working on this book, you know, besides going, I mean, because that process of going through the academic press is very fascinating, and it sounds very rigorous. <laughs> and and you yeah. know, did you have a support group around you of other writers? Yeah, um, yeah. Let's Absolutely. talk a little bit about that. Share share with us your insight about support groups, and in particular that one. And what can you yeah. share with us? Well. I think I think it, writing's a very lonely profession, and mm-hmm. and there's a lot of time for uh, reflection and and you know doubt can creep in. Is this any good? Is this worth pursuing? What am I doing? You know, you you have these thoughts, and it's good to have a have a few friends that are going through the same experience. So so I do stay in. Two of my very best friends are are authors. Here they both live here in Olympia. One, Jim Lynch, mm-hmm. he's had considerable success after leaving the newspaper world and written. He's on his fifth fiction book now. Oh, we're going to bring him on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, and yeah. his first one, The Highest Tide, he just sold the movie rights too. So that's always oh, a big. That's a good, interesting discussion. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but anyway, uh, we they. We didn't have a formal group, but we mm-hmm. we get together all the time and talk about what we're doing, what we're going through, ideas. Mm-hmm. And when I told him I was going to take this on as a project, we were down at the local pub having a beer. And he goes, well, look at it this way, John. Even if you don't get published, you'll become the person that knows the most in the world <laughs> about this storm. You know? That's fantastic. <laughs> but But anyway, very helpful. He helped. You know, he, he he alerted his New York agent to my book, who in turn alerted one of her coworkers. So that's how nice. I got a New York agent. No, that's but, fantastic. I, I but think those you gotta have you gotta have support group. Absolutely, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I I am excited to hear that. Um, you do have a great support group and it's that friendships. And I was when I started out on this journey to start my first book. Um, I didn't have a support group and mm-hmm. I started, then I started the podcast and started to meet local authors from all over Washington, Oregon and landed in being in, invited into this really great group in my area of writers. And it has changed everything I do. Um, we get together twice a week and we actually share chapters as we're working on them. Oh, twice and a week. That's yeah. Mean. I mean, sorry, not twice yeah. a week, twice a month. That's a lot. Twice oh, a week would be too much. Yeah. No twice a month which is still quite a bit yeah um but I love it because it's giving me natural deadlines as I'm working on a manuscript but also the feedback is fantastic and and none of us are really writing in the same genre which makes it even more exciting (laughs) Mm because you get different perspectives of of genres so so I am glad to hear you had a good support group and we'll definitely um you and I will talk after the show about bringing on your author friends because we can have them on the podcast and they can share their journey with us. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So the podcast came out of me asking these questions of authors that I was meeting. You know, mm-hmm. how did you get published? What was your what was your what's your writing process like? You know, I'm I'm new to this whole process and asking those questions. And it um and then I was like, this is really great information. I can't keep it to myself. <laughs> so, sure. So sure. That's the podcast. So <laughs> well, there's a lot of tricks that you you need to know about how to approach a publishing house or how mm-hmm. to approach an agent I mean, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I didn't I didn't know all that so I relied on my my friends that have been through it and you know how and it's different it's different between a fiction piece of fiction and a piece of nonfiction. you mm-hmm. you you present them with different material mm-hmm. but anyway uh, yeah it can be daunting if you don't have some guidance Mm-hmm. It definitely can. And I love the fact that you guys meet up and, and you have a drink over it. <laughs> yeah. One of my favorite things. So I, I got to know if you don't mind telling me which pub do you go to in Olympia? Cause I'm a big Olympia fan. So I'm wondering. Well, um, I, I spread my business you spread around, your wealth, uh, right? <laughs> but, uh, I, 
the conversation I just mentioned happened down at the Fishtail Brewery. I love Fishtail. I was thinking, I had that pictured in my head. That's where that happened, honestly. That's where it did happen. <laughs> That's yeah. funny, because I was just thinking, I, I, we haven't been back to Fishtail for a while, and I was like, man, that's the perfect conversation place for something like this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it I is. It. I've, I've, I've done a lot of read, a lot of talking with writers at, at yeah. The Fish. Yeah, we're not close enough anymore to Fishtail, but yeah. we, my husband and I have our little place here in our area that we go to often. We're known as locals yeah. now and regulars, yeah. and, and I meet up with a lot of people there, and it's it's just nice to have those conversations. Um, yep. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about what keeps you going, John. So you had a lot – well, before I start on that that question, let's backtrack a little bit because I didn't ask sure. this question. Um, so if you don't mind, uh, let's go back to – when did you know that you were going to become a writer for a career? I mean, did you just oh. land into newspaper writing? How, no. did, how did that start for you? Where did it a go? lot, a lot like you. I was, you know, I worked on the high school newspaper and I was the editor, editor of the annual. Mm-hmm. So I, I was kind of in that, that mix of school publications. And then um, I went to the university of Washington but I switched my major from journalism to cultural anthropology. Hmm, that's a big switch, actually. (laughs) Well, but there is a lot of similarities. You're an observer. You take notes. You write up what you see. But anyway, uh, and then after Watergate, I was reinfused with interest in journalism. Mm -hmm. Went went back to college at Evergreen in a... uh, communications program oh, that, I love evergreen <laughs> that led to a it led to a spring internship at a newspaper who, and then when I graduated they hired me and I was going to just write for newspapers for a little while to get disciplined in my writing mm-hmm. and then write and then write the great american novel and then mm-hmm. I I ended up just kind of getting sucked into a, a life of print journalism and and I put a lot of my creative writing on the back burner until I retired in 2015 and mm-hmm. you know, uh, this book was pretty well along by then, but it wasn't complete. And then since then I've been working on uh, other projects, including collection of short stories. Fantastic. And I was going to ask you, are you going to write the American novel now that you're retired and you have all of that writing experience underneath your belt as a journalist, you know, yeah. uh, are you working well, on that novel? <laughs> Well, I do, you know, I, I'm following a path that you see pretty uh, well worn by other journalists where their first, first book tends to be a nonfiction book. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and it's it's not unusual and it's kind of a natural uh, uh, transition from newspaper reporting. It's kind of like a big newspaper project. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's kind of like a newspaper enterprise project on steroids. Mm-hmm. And, exactly. <laughs> and, and so I did, I feel like I've got my, my nonfiction book out of the way and now I'm studying and writing and practicing and learning and writing and learning and writing mm-hmm. fiction, trying Good. to, you know, get better at dialogue and better at, you know, show, don't tell and mm-hmm. better at narrative. And so, um, yeah, I'm, I think I'll go from, my goal is from, nonfiction book to collection of short stories to first novel. That's kind of the sequence I I see unfolding. Fantastic. Well, when the novel is done and out, we'll bring you back. (laughs) I will want to hear it. (laughs) All right. So it's it's a promise. It all comes together. Yeah. Yes. yes. Okay. So, and then I'm going to wrap back around to the question I was starting with until I realized I didn't know the full story of your writing journey from start to Mm -hmm. finish. Right. Um, So what keeps you going as an author? What, what's your inspiration? Um, I just really enjoy the, the the craft and the experience and I'm really enjoying this this dipping my toes into fiction and and letting my imagination run a little freer mm-hmm. it's less you know I'll be a little less constrained by truth and the facts and you know making stuff up it's kind of fun and then, <laughs> and then getting you know getting attached to a character and and trying to figure out you know what's their next move gonna be and um I don't know. I just, I think I, there's not really, I'm not a very good carpenter. 
Mm-hmm. I'm, a, I'm not a very good plumber or an electrician <laughs> or an engineer, not very good at math. Um, I tend to be pretty good at writing. That's so, fantastic. <laughs> I, I think I'm just going to stick with what makes me happy and comfortable. I, I think that's a brilliant inspiration. And, and I do <laughs> believe that we need to do what makes us happy, right? And yeah, our life yeah. is fulfilled that way. So, so fantastic. Well, let's set the stage for your reading. Share with us again the sure. title so that we didn't, so the listeners don't miss that. And then fill in anything that you need to fill in before you start sure. the reading. And then um, I will bring us out of the podcast at the end of your reading. Okay, so again, the name of the book is A Deadly Wind, the 1962 Columbus Day Storm. This storm has, is, still holds the title of strongest, fiercest windstorm to strike the West Coast in recorded history. With multiple readings of 100 mile an hour plus winds, it had hurricane force winds. It was not a hurricane. It was an extra tropical cyclone, but it had many of the characteristics of a hur- hurricane. It uh, damaged or destroyed over 50,000 homes in the Pacific Northwest. It um, fatalities r- roughly 60. Uh, uh, there were probably enough. There was enough timber knocked down in the in the woods of our great far far corner here to build a million homes. 15 billion board feet of timber. It's just a huge number. Um, property damage, including the timber, ran in the uh, two to five billion dollar range, adjusted to 2017 dollars. And it's still a bit of a puzzler. People understand pretty much the, the meteorology behind the storm, and it's not. It's similar to what happens almost. Well, at least every few years, you know, no more than every 10, no less than every 10 years, um, where we get these windstorms, they come across the Pacific Ocean. They usually start as typhoons in the far Pacific and morph across the ocean and then become energized by differences in air pressure and uh, barometric pressure. And so this storm went on a, on a rampage on a, the early morning hours of October 12th and didn't come to rest until the early morning hours of October 13th. So it was about a 24-hour experience. And there's just a lot of stories to tell along the path to the storm. And I went, went out and tried to gather as many of them as I could and then wrote in a sequence of you know the storm's path from Northern California up to Southern BC. And we stop along the way in Newport and uh, Portland and Seattle and Tacoma and Olympia and uh, Salem, Eugene, uh, all along the path we, we find stories to tell and mix in a little history, mix in a little meteorology, talk about weather forecasting then, which was very crude compared to today, which is much more advanced. We get the warning now of a storm like this, for, you know, three to five days in advance instead of a matter of hours. Uh, there's just so much more satellite information out there and computers that can predict uh, patterns of weather. So it's, it's a bit of meteorology, a bit of storytelling, and a bit of Northwest history all rolled into one. Fantastic. What a lot of uh, interesting facts. So we're ready for your reading. Okay. Um, we're going we're gonna to pick up with the storm pretty early evening, Friday evening around 7, 7.30. It's already laid waste to the Oregon uh, Willamette Valley, and now it's moving up through uh, Puget Sound. Um, let's see here. I just... Gonna catch my spot in the book. I'm holding my phone and trying to thumb through pages. Here we go. So, is it time to begin? Yes, please. Okay. This is entitled Lions in the Wind. As the Columbus Day storm raced through the South Puget Sound region around 8 p.m., winds gusted at 85 to 90 miles per hour in Spanaway, Washington a modest suburban neighborhood just south of Tacoma. Uh, 
the beastly winds drew many of the uninitiated outside to experience the wind's energy and witness the damage all around. Falling trees, shattered windows, down power lines and fences, garbage cans tumbling down the street, street signs and chunks of roof slicing through the air. Granted, stepping outside to be exposed to a major league weather disaster is not advised, but it's easy to see why people did it, given the rarity of the moment. The people of the Pacific Northwest had not seen a windstorm of this size and strength in recorded history. The storm strengthened as Charlie Brammer, age seven, joined his parents, Ray and Mary Brammer, outside their Spanaway home. The parents wanted to check the condition of their roof, and Charlie wanted to play in the wind. Their lives were to be changed forever. Flashlight in hand, Ray Brammer shined a beam of light skyward to survey the just-replaced composite shingle on the roof. The sight was a bit unsettling. Some of the shingles were standing on end, but the roof was holding together despite the windy assault. Charlie, a spirited young boy just falling in love with baseball and soccer, was preoccupied by the wind in a more fanciful way. He spread his arms wide, scrawny wings on a flesh-and-blood airplane body, and waited to see if the gusts would lift him up into the air. What young boy or, boy or girl doesn't at some time dream of flying? These are really strong winds, Charlie thought, strong enough to make the dream of flying come true. In a nearby field, a large animal paced in circles, agitated, confused about how to handle its newfound freedom. Charlie's mother saw the outline of the animal in the darkness. She thought nothing of it, assuming it was a big dog. It was about time for the Brammers to go back to inside the house into the safety of their home. Charlie's wind-aided flight turned into a stumble the mysterious animal sensed his vulnerability and ran at him, eating up the distance like an animal on the hunt. The beast reached Charlie and knocked him to the ground. At first, I thought it was our dog Whitey, a Samoyed, Grammar recalled more than 50 years later during an interview at the Cabela's store in Lacey, Washington. The next thing I knew, I was being bit around my eyes and face. Charlie let out a high-pitched scream and his parents came running. Blood poured into the young boy's eyes, which prevented him from seeing his attacker then or, or later. At first, Ray Brammer didn't know what the animal was either. He smacked it with his flashlight, and his wife pulled off a slipper to beat, it, to beat the animal too. The clubbings did nothing to stop the attack. Brammer grabbed the creature around the neck and tried to pull it off his boy. Then he saw the feline face of an African lion. My God, he thought to himself. He realized he was in a fight for his young boy's life. A surge of adrenaline coursed through the father's veins. He managed to pry the lion off his son. Run for the house, he cried to Charlie. Charlie ran away from the house, away from safety. I couldn't see. My eyes were so bloody, Brammer recalled. His parents screamed out directions in a desperate bid to guide him back toward the house. By then, the 200-pound lioness was free from the father's grasp. Her long loping strides ate up the ground between her and her prey. She pounced again and knocked Charlie onto the concrete porch steps, opening an ugly gash on his forehead. Charlie's parents were in frantic pursuit. Again, the father had to wrest the lioness away from her prey, his son, long enough for the bleeding, blinded little boy to scramble inside. The lion and father disengaged and the parents staged into the house. Once inside, they knew they had to get their injured son to the hospital, but outside they could see the lion pacing by the, by the car, searching for wind-whipped scents of Charlie. The lion had the taste of Charlie's blood in her mouth, Ray Bremer said, as he reflected on that windy, frightful night. I'm going to paraphrase a little bit and then pick up again as we move along with this story. So they wrapped Charlie's head in a towel, and he called his neighbor to help have him come help get him get Charlie to the hospital because he felt like they were trapped in their own home. So the son, the father calls his good, good buddy next door. And this, this fellow comes over in his car. And, and so now they're trying to get Charlie uh, into the car and away from the lion. 
So Charlie, now I'm back to the reading. Charlie remembers his father snatching him up and hustling him to the car. But as, as his father stuffed him in the front seat, the lion appeared, reappeared from the front of the home, determined to pull his wounded prey from the vehicle. The lion sprang and the father was locked in another life and death wrestling match with a lioness that wanted him all his son. Ray Brammer fought his way into the car between his wounded boy and the lion. He used the handle of the bat and his feet to push the lion away, then slammed the door shut. Outside in the howling wind, the lion was once and for all separated from his prey. So I'm going to summarize again for a moment where they rushed to the hospital. It's a tough harrowing trip with all the traffic lights out and the debris in the air flying through the air and the down trees. But they get there and they go to the emergency room and they patch him. The nurses and doctors patch him up. He didn't lose any eyesight. It was a, it's very close call. Uh, he, was, he was actually quite lucky. He was pretty badly mauled around the eyes, but his photo was snapped by a Tacoma news tribune reporter. Uh, and so then we have Charlie knowing that his picture is going to be in the paper. Um, he told me my picture was going to be on the front page of the paper the next morning. I was on cloud nine, Charlie Brammer remembers, but the photo ended up on page two. Speaking to a TNT reporter the next day, Mary Brammer marveled at how composed Charlie remained through the whole ordeal. He was the calmest of all of us, she said at the time. He just said he wished lions had never been invented. So now we come to the question everybody must have by now. Where did the lion come from? Wasn't an escapee from some nearby zoo, part of a traveling show of wild animals set free by the hellacious storm? No and no. The lionesses belonged to Joseph and Margaret McAllister and their son, Yui, who lived a few blocks down the street from the Brammers. Charlie remembered seeing Yui Brammer walking the lioness twins down the street that past summer, secured by two precarious leashes. From the safety of the front porch, it was a sight to behold for the young boy. The singular parade was something exciting and out of the ordinary, but disturbing too. The McAllisters kept their exotic pets in their backyard in a 12-foot-high wooden enclosure, which was one of the first things the fierce winds demolished as they swept through the neighborhood. So then question number two, where did the McAllisters get the lions? What would seem to be an obvious question has an elusive answer. No, newspaper accounts and lawsuits after the mauling are silent. Uh, Ray Brammer, I, I had no luck locating members of the McAllister family for an answer. Ray Brammer remembers hearing someone say they acquired the lions from the Tacoma-based Point Defiance Zoo and Aquarium. Zoo officials said they found no record of any lion transactions between the zoo and the McAllisters. In fact, we have no records indicating any transfer of lions to private parties, said Chris Sherman, a public relations coordinator for the zoo. The zoo did exhibit lions from 1950 to 1980, and the numbers ranged from two lions in 1915 to 10 cubs born in captivity in 1967, according to the incomplete records they supplied by zoo officials. Perhaps it's just coincidence, but the Tacoma News Tribune carried a story in its August 12, 1960 edition featuring twin lionesses born on July 23rd and about to make their public debut. Uh, Zimmerman, the TNT photographer, captured a shot of the twin lions with their cocked heads, adorable, inquisitive eyes, and oversized paws. The twin lionesses that escaped the McAllister's crude enclosure the night of the storm were described as immature lionesses named Tammy and Sissy. Tammy had been declawed and defanged. The one that attacked Charlie, Sissy, still had all her predatory tools. Shortly before she mauled the young boy, she had pounced on another neighbor, Helen Sullivan, who nearly lost an ear in the attack. While the Brammers were at the hospital, Pierce County Sheriff's deputies were dispatched to the neighborhood. They encountered Tammy near the Brammer residence. Meanwhile, Sissy had returned to, to her enclosure and was captured by Huey McAllister, who brought her to the sheriff's deputies to put down. 
They shot both lions in the alley behind two blocks, about two blocks from our home, Ray Brammer remembered. A neighbor retrieved one of the shotgun shells used to slay the lions and gave it to Charlie. I had it for a long time, Brammer said. I'm going to stop there, I think, and just summarize what how the story unfolds from there. But it, there was protracted court proceedings, lawsuits filed. The McAllisters had no money. They kind, kind of came begging to the Brammers, asking for an out-of-court settlement, which the Brammers granted. It was like <laughs> they paid $3,200 to the Brammer family, and mm. they they put the money aside, most of what they received aside for Charlie when he became of age and he, he used the money to buy himself a car. Um, he didn't have any long-term lasting effects from the uh, attack other than his parents are convinced he was never the same around large animals or mm -hmm. didn't, didn't really like big dogs and big cats and didn't show a lot of interest in going to the zoo. Uh, and to me, it's interesting that in our state, in the state of Washington, the ownership of exotic pets like this by private parties wasn't, it was still allowed up until, and I need to double check my date. I think it was 2006 when the state legislature finally passed laws making it illegal for uh, individual citizens to own pets like this in an uncontrolled setting. And um, it just boggles my mind, you know, that something like this, it would take that long for, uh, for um, resolution, you know, to avoid it from happening mm -hmm. again. Mm -hmm. um, so one final little reading I'd like to leave your listeners with speaks to um, kind of a theme that I think is reflected throughout the book. Um, and it's, I have to kind of, it's near the end. I have to catch it. Um, if I, I, if I were to say anything about um, this, this storm, I would say this meteorologists have long puzzled over the Columbus day storm. It's violent development. It's stubborn persistence. It's mighty reach and it's a d destructive power. They figured out some of the storms equation, but not all of it. And that's okay. The storm is an outlier, and outliers imply a sense of mystery. They reside in a place where not all is explained. And so it is with the Columbus Day storm, a powerful act of nature that allowed for, no, insisted on, gaps in knowledge, unanswered questions, and a cloud of mystery over a stormy world partly understood and partly left for us to ponder. And with that, I'd like to also add a something that my, one of my favorite authors said years ago, Ken Kesey, uh, the need for mystery is greater than a need for an answer, need mm -hmm. for an answer. So mm -hmm. there you have it, Vicki. Oh, I love it, John. And, and here's the thing that I love about your writing. You answered the questions I had <laughs> while you were telling <laughs> us the story about the, the lion and the, and like, how in the heck was there a lion? Yeah. And, and I'm glad. Yeah. I'm I'm glad that you answered those questions, but it does make me sad too that it was not until 2006 that there was legislation placed for that because yeah. that's very yeah. sad to me. I'm a huge animal lover, but I yeah. do believe that we have to, you know, be good stewards. <laughs> you know, yeah, so. th this was irresponsible mm -hmm. pet ownership. Yeah, they, definitely. They had, they had no business having those lions. No, luckily, no. no one lost their lives. But yeah, uh, yeah, but it. To me, it's one of the crazier stories I found on the path of the storm. Absolutely. Who would have thought that in the <laughs> storm path, there would be lionesses roaming loose, right? That would not have right. crossed my mind. So wonderful. Yeah. wonderful. So thank you for sharing, John, the story. Now, before we go, I do want to ask, share with the listeners, because I have a lot of authors that are or aspiring authors like myself that listen to the podcast. Give us a tip from your from your catalog of wisdom um, as far as being a, an author right in the active voice mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> no i think uh a try try again is another thing think of all the authors who have received rejection letters that mm -hmm. went on to become best-selling authors you, you know there's a niche for your work you just have to find it thinking you know 
it's it's easy to get discouraged, you know, when the rejection letters start stacking up. But all it takes, like my agents always said, remember, John, it only takes one yes, and all the no's, you know, are don't mean a thing. So uh, stay positive, keep keep plugging away, be willing to accept uh, constructive criticism, and uh, maybe maybe you'll catch lightning in a bottle. Awesome. Wonderful tips. I'm taking those in for myself today. So thank you, John. <laughs> and, and let's definitely have you back on when you finish your, your nonfiction. Uh, I mean, sorry, when you finish your fiction novel, let's bring you back on because I would love to hear it. Okay, well, I, I hope to be able to do that. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We hope you enjoyed the episode as much as we did. Follow us on social media and sign up for our newsletter where you can be entered automatically each month to win a signed free copy of a book from an author that's appeared on the podcast. You can find out more at our website, www.squishpin.com. And finally, if you're an author in the Pacific Northwest and you would like to appear on the show, you can find out more on our website. So until next week, I hope you enjoy the journey. This is Vicki J. Carter signing off.